Today I'm going to be starting a three-week sermon series that's based on some readings from the Gospel of Mark. Some of you may know I've been teaching online for the last five months a weekly Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. We're going through it one verse, one chapter at a time on Wednesday mornings at uh, 10 o'clock. You can join us if you'd like to. Um, and I just chose three texts for these three weeks that really resonate with me and with other people. They're sort of turning points in the gospel narrative as Jesus progressively works from the beginning of his ministry all the way down to Jerusalem and eventually to the cross and to Easter. And each of these three texts will give us a feel for what's going on during his journey. So the first lesson comes to us from the fourth chapter of Mark, verses 35 through 41. Listen now for God's word to you today. That day when it was evening, Jesus said to them, let's go over to the other side. They left the crowd and took him with them in the boat he'd been in. There were other boats with him too. A big windstorm blew up. The waves beat on the boat and it quickly began to fill. Jesus, however, was asleep on the cushion in the stern. They woke him up. Teacher, they said, we're going to drown. Don't you care? He got up, scolded the wind and said to the sea, silence, shut up. The wind died and there was a flat calm. And then he said to them, why are you scared? Don't you believe yet? Great fear stole over them. Who is this? They said to each other. Even the wind and the sea do what he says. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world this day as best we can. In Jesus' name, amen. So, it uh, may be short, that gospel passage, but it's sure loaded, loaded with meaning, layers upon layers, and there's lots of ways you can unpack this text. For example, the other day, I was leading a uh, Bible study or a group online on Zoom. Wasn't the same one that I do Wednesday, a different group. And what I did was led the folks in a, what's called a Lexio Divina. The English is sacred reading. It's a way for us to hear, listen to a text more with our hearts than with our heads. So I read this same passage through three times really slowly. And then at the end, I asked the participants what word or phrase or image really stands out to you from this passage. And almost every single person responded with the same thing. They said, it's right after Jesus calms the storm and the disciples respond by saying, who is this? Who is this? Now you can answer that question in a number of ways. First of all, you could say that in a time of great fear, the disciples realize that they can turn to Jesus and rely on him to save them when they're in a stormy sea. 
And so the lesson for us would be we can do the same thing. We can turn to and pray to and rely on Jesus to help us through whatever storms we face in our lives. And then there's a second way you can look at this scripture passage, and that is through the symbolic lens of first century Judaism, out of which Christianity itself grew. You know, there are so many places in the Hebrew Bible where uh, water, or the sea, is seen as a symbol of chaos. Chaos. Think of the creation story in Genesis, or Noah's Ark, or remember a couple weeks ago, Moses and the people of Israel, right before the Red Sea. Water is an uncontrollable, unfathomable, and oftentimes demonic force that stands in the way of what God wants to do or gets in the way of what God's people are supposed to do. And sometimes, the Bible says, a great storm brews and comes over the face of the deep. In the book of Job, which you remember, talks about how an individual named Job, how his life is devastated by all sorts of chaos and terrible things. In the book of Job, the storm is called a whirlwind, which is the same word that Mark uses in the gospel to describe the storm on the Sea of Galilee. So, the point is here, who can possibly master such an evil force, this whirlwind of chaos. Who can possibly do that? Well, to a first century Jew, like any of the disciples on that boat, the answer is obvious. Only God can do something like that. So they, they, they know that God is the only one who can control the chaos of the sea. As it says in uh, Psalm 107, they went down to the sea in ships, and their courage melted. And then they cried to the Lord, and he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. That's the same thing that's going on here in Mark's gospel from way back in the times when the Psalms were written. So when Jesus himself calms the sea, a theological dimension is added to the question of who he is. He's God, which is probably why the disciples freak out when he calms the sea. And then there's another much more down-to-earth way of looking at the question of Jesus' identity in this story. And it comes by remembering where he is at the start of the story. Remember? Jesus is lying down in the stern of the boat with his head on a pillow. He's right where the pilot would control the tiller. So apparently it seems like Jesus himself is the tillerman on that boat. But unbelievably, he falls asleep on the job. And he lets the boat go adrift on a stormy sea. That's not exactly the most comforting image you can ever have of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You know, it also complicates the question of who he is. Because, I mean, 
Who wants a sleeping Jesus? So with fear and trembling, and I imagine some doubts about his character, his disciples wake him up. They say, Rabbi, don't you care that we're perishing? And in a direct translation from the original Greek in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus yells at the sea, shut up! And everything calms down. And he says to his disciples, why are you such cowards? Don't you trust yet? And it turns out the key to the meaning of this story lies in that little word, trust. In Greek, the word is pistis. It's translated into English as trust or faith or belief. But even if those words are similar, even in English, trust and faith and belief, they're not always the same. They don't always mean the same thing, not necessarily. So when Jesus scolds his disciples for what they lack, he's not talking about belief in the sense of accepting something to be true when you don't have any proof. And he's not talking about faith in the sense of holding certain ideas correct doctrines or faith statements in your head about who Jesus is. What the disciples lack is trust, pure and simple. So let's define trust. Two scientists are on an expedition in the mountains down in uh, wherever it was. Let's just say Borneo, for example. And they discover a baby eagle. It's uh, in a nest just below the top of a dangerous cliff, and it's been abandoned, and they want to save it. So what they do is they turn to the young son of their guide, their mountain guide, and they, they say to him, would it be okay if we lower you on a rope, and you can go down and get that eaglet, and we can save it and bring it back up? And they ask him, and he says, no, I'm not ready to do that. So they ask, they, they offer him some money. And they offer him some more money. And each time he says no. And one of the scientists turns to him and says, Well, what are we going to do to save this poor little baby eagle? And the young boy looks at him and he says, I'll go down for free if only you have my father hold the rope for me. So where's the trust in that story? Well, it's in a relationship. It's in a relationship that's been nurtured for years that allows that son to risk everything, his own life, because he knows his father has a hold of him. And as the Dalai Lama says, you can't buy trust in a supermarket. Trust is accepting that somebody is capable of doing what they say they're going to do. So, let's get back to the disciples on the boat in the storm. What does Jesus say he's going to do? Well, right at the start he says, they're going to take this boat to the other side of the sea. He doesn't say what they can expect on the way or what's waiting for them on the other side. He just says they're going to take the boat 
across the sea to the other side. That's their mission. And here's the thing. The one who is showing trust here is Jesus. He trusts his disciples to do what needs to be done. And that's why he can fall asleep. He wants them to take hold of the tiller and to get a hold of themselves and to get that boat to the other side of the sea. Of course, the end of the story, we, we realize the disciples have messed up, just like followers of Jesus have messed up for 2,000 years. But Jesus saves them. Jesus saves us. But there will come a time when his disciples can trust themselves and trust the Spirit of God within them enough to get to where they need to go. It's like the old Russian proverb that says, pray, but keep rowing the boat to the other side. And that's the lesson for you and me today. Just think for a moment where we are right now. Okay, it's probably better to say where we are virtually right now, but be that as it may, if you were sitting right now in the sanctuary here, the place where you would be sitting is called what? It's called the nave, the nave of the church. And that word comes from the Latin navis, which is also the root of our English word navy. And that shouldn't be surprising because nawis, or nave, means boat. In other words, symbolically, you and I are sitting in a boat at this very moment. Wherever we are physically, we're together spiritually in the body of Christ. And that brings us back to the question we started out with. Who is Jesus? Well, it turns out that the answer is, Jesus is in us. Jesus is the kind of Savior who trusts you and me to be his arms and his legs and his eyes and his ears and his heart and his mind in this world. And I'm pretty sure you've probably heard something like that before, words to that effect. And, you know, it's an uplifting idea should be humbling too. We are Jesus in this world. But honestly, a lot of the time, it's also pretty hard to accept that idea, especially now. These days with all the storms brewing all around us and within us, and maybe the greatest storm of all is what's called the trust deficit, the deficit in trust. So many people lack trust in individuals, in all sorts of institutions, and that includes the church. So, what are we going to do about it? What can we do about it in our community, in our politics, in our families, and in our church? Well, first, think about the attitudes and behaviors that build up trust. It starts with authenticity. 
It's being honest and upfront about what you aim to do and being transparent while you're doing it. It's being open to new ideas and being vulnerable enough to admit when you screw up and to learn from your mistakes. Authenticity. And then there's competency. To build trust, you have to show you're capable of doing what you promise to do. Doesn't mean you always accomplish it, but you do have to set some sort of a track record that other people can rely on. Competency. And finally, what you need to earn trust is you have to show you care. You have to show you care. That means intending to make a positive difference in people's lives, letting them know about it, and inviting them to join you on a worthwhile journey somewhere. And it's doing something. It's paying attention when somebody gets lost or falls behind on the way. Those are the building blocks of trust in any relationship. Authenticity, competency, and caring. And no doubt, they're not always present. Because trust is an ongoing exchange between people. It fluctuates over time. It can be earned, it can be lost, and the good news is that trust can be regained too. And what it takes to get it back or to earn it, is practice. Practice. That's what Jesus wants from his disciples in that little boat in the middle of a whirlwind. He wants them to practice trust in him and also in themselves. Because he sees them as trustworthy. And he sees you and me the same way, too. You know, back in April 1938, in the midst of a global storm we call the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt gave one of his uh, famous fireside addresses. And he said these words, quote, I never forget that I live in a house owned by all the American people and that I have been given their trust. I try always to remember that their deepest problems are human. I constantly talk with those who come to tell me their own points of view, with those who manage the great industries and financial institutions of the country, with those who represent the farmer and the worker, and often, very often, with average citizens without high position who come to this house. And then he went on to say this. I can hear your unspoken wonder as to where we are headed in this troubled world. And I always try to remember that reconciling differences cannot satisfy everyone completely. But to abandon our purpose of building a greater, a more stable, and a more tolerant America would be to miss the tide and perhaps to miss the port. 
I propose to sail ahead. I feel sure that your hopes and I feel sure that your help are with me. For to reach a port, we must sail. Sail, not lie at anchor. Sail, not drift. That's what FDR said all those years ago. And, you know, a lot of people trusted him, just as he trusted the people. And Jesus said to his disciples out there in a boat in the middle of a storm, do not be afraid. Trust in me and trust in yourselves too. For I am with you and in you always, wherever you go. May you and I trust in that promise. May we practice what it takes to be trustworthy wherever this little boat we call the church takes us. In Jesus' name.